Good evening. Broadcasting live. Canada Day, July 1st, 2016. First day back from Asia. Or first broadcast anyway. I've been away for a month. I'm just getting back and adjusting to the time change. So apologies for missing a month, but uh, it's probably the well, it's the last scheduled trip to Asia for me in the foreseeable future. Not that the future is very foreseeable and I may just turn around and head back at any time. But no plans. The plans are to stay in Canada and we're moving. We've uh, we've signed a lease for a new house, and I know moving is not the greatest thing to do when you're trying to set up and uh, and establish a, a meditation center. But we needed more room. We have many people interested in coming to meditate this month, next month. Uh, all through to September and, and even onward, so we needed more room. Uh, so the new house has six bedrooms, and it's about the same distance, um, in the same area, so we're not moving far. And that'll be July 15th or 16th. So things are really coming together. We are moving forward. And you should see good things coming in the future. And I will for sure try to get back to doing more videos. Back to the Dhammapada and of course daily broadcast they have a very short quote but uh, pithy all the same it's from the alagadupa masutta snakes Uh, and this is to, it, it's to a monk who who uh, claims that the Buddha's teaching is is wrong. That what the Buddha what the Buddha talks about as 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 problems that the, the what the Buddha identifies as being the problem is not really a problem. You know, craving is not a problem. Clinging to things doesn't cause suffering. Desires are good. Desire is not the cause of suffering. Tanha, thirst is not a cause for alarm. And they really don't obstruct you. They don't cause problems. And so the monks call him out on this and they bring him to the Buddha. And the Buddha, of course, is not concerned by this, which is 
uh, important to note because it's easy to be disturbed when other people uh, challenge us, challenge our views, challenge our practices. It's okay to acknowledge that you have doubt. Uh, it's important to acknowledge if you have your own doubt. It's um, perhaps too common for people to uh, pretend confidence that they don't have and to force uh, a confidence. It's also common for there to be an overconfidence, such confidence that you think that you're sure of something. Um, it's common with Buddhism because Buddhism sounds so good. And even when you don't know something, you have such confidence in it that you'll defend it to anyone. But that confidence is weak. It's fickle. I've seen often this sort of confidence very strong. Become strong doubt. Suddenly switch. It's not based on it's not based on understanding. Now, of course, the Buddha the claim is that the Buddha understood. And of course the monks, many monks actually understood. Honestly, it's not that hard to understand. Um, if you understand Buddhism, it's, it's not like it's, it's something that we can question, that, that craving is, is a problem. We know that addiction causes suffering. And if you think, if, a, if an intelligent person thinks about it, they can, uh, they can quickly see that there's... Yeah, is why we kind of accept these things as vices we just don't take them seriously the most common is not that we don't believe what the buddha taught is correct it's just we don't really take it seriously and we don't or we don't think it through clearly so we understand that addiction is a problem but we don't see the problem in, in uh, and what turns out to be addiction, you know, the, 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 the likes and dislikes of life, they're not really a problem, even though they're addiction nonetheless, addiction and aversion, because we don't look closely enough. Anyway, it's very difficult to come to this understanding that all craving and, and all, nothing is worth clinging to, that kind of thing. But of course the Buddha had this understanding. This was his unshakable belief through knowledge, belief through understanding. So, the, so I bring this up is because uh, the Buddha calls him out on it. He said, oh fine, you believe this, but who, who cares what you believe, basically. He says, he, he turns to the monks and he says, uh, has this guy, has this monk produced any spark of understanding in this teaching of discipline? And the monks say, how should that be, Lord? Certainly not. So basically, who cares what he says? I mean, he's not, he, he hasn't learned anything. He hasn't come to any of his own realizations. He's just spouting belief, which is another important point. Is we often equate people's beliefs, beliefs. I believe that craving is the cause of suffering. And the person may believe that craving is not the cause of suffering. And it's common for people to say, well, you know, everyone is entitled to their belief. Well, yes, sure, but not all beliefs are equal. I believe that homosexual people deserve to be killed. That's not an equal belief to believing that all life is sacred or um, any killing is perverse and wrong, no matter what. 
like the killing of Hitler, would be wrong. There's a very different belief from you know, killing Jews is a good thing. Very different beliefs. And hotly debated for the most part. Beliefs are, uh, it's actually good when they're hotly debated. It's good for there to be debate. What I think is more dangerous is when there's no debate. When, uh, and one of two things happens. The first is that we say all beliefs are to each their own kind of thing. And the other is where we put it aside and, and don't and fail to recognize the importance of belief in determining, in informing people's actions. So when someone kills a bunch of people who happen to be homosexual and uh, a killer who happens to be of a certain religion that calls for the killing of homosexual people. It's funny how we tend to ignore or marginalize. I mean, there's two groups. There's the groups who immediately call for the uh, persecution of all people of that faith. And then there's those who try and minimalize almost apologize for the, the, the even considering the idea that religion might have played some part. I suppose both are dangerous. It's dangerous to say that all people who follow a religion, a certain religion, are evil. It's even more dangerous to, to pretend that yeah, Religion doesn't, isn't, can't be evil. Beliefs can't be evil. I mean, that's the, the another thing is we fail to, to equate religion with view. So we've, we've, see, we've, we've grown up as a society believing that religion is a part of who you are in the same way as your nationality or your skin color, or your uh, language. It's just another part of who you are. Because it's very much tied to that, right? Or it has been traditionally. Uh, Buddhists have been Asian. Christians have been European or, or, or African. It's a very general, broad story. Maybe Latino as well. Uh, Muslims have been brown, brown skin. Hindus the same. You know, this is uh, traditional, and and countries. This country is this. This country is that. But regardless of how, it's become just another part of who we are, innocuous like the rest of these things. So when, once you start equating religion to nationality or skin color, or uh, not, not, not even associating, but, but putting it in a similar category to language even, culture, it's just another, one, another thing. The problem is it's not. Religion is unlike any of those things. None of those things mean anything compared to religion. There's no other one thing. And you could argue that language affects who you are, skin color, ge ge geographic location, but they're all, they're all fairly irrelevant arguments that, that don't have any meaningful effect on a person. Nowhere near the effect that a religion has. Religion is quite different. It does have a strong effect on who someone is. It does change how a person will react. Now, it doesn't. It isn't the only thing, of course, that informs a person. I mean, culture informs a person's actions, changes how one acts. So different cultures have different 
responses, but even culture is very much affected by religion. But why religion is special is because it has explicit statements, like two men who lie down together should be stoned to death. Heck, a son who uh, tell, says to his father, hey, let's go worship other gods, should be stoned to death. The religion I was brought up says such things. Brought up with. Um, a woman should be a woman who refuses intercourse should be beaten. Uh, you know, women who are women who are uh, not subservient to their husbands should be beaten. Lots of religions say lots of crazy things, and it's a shame that we like to whitewash these things. So often you hear people say, all religions basic message is love. I heard this recently, got in an argument with someone, brief argument, wasn't really drawn into it. But the idea that well, someone could say that, is, I mean, for a student of religion, it's, I don't know, I mean, for a real academic student of religion, they probably wouldn't say the things that I say. They tend to be more neutral and just study it like a like a dead snake or something like a like a dead body but uh, religion is very much a live snake it has teeth it has poison there's much poison in religion even buddhism buddhism isn't perfect there are things in buddhism that are questionable not much but I mean, the biggest thing in Buddhism is probably the misogyny. It's a shame that uh, it's come to be fairly misogynistic in certain aspects. I mean, there are arguments you could make and interpretations that you could give that neutralize it to some extent. And I think that's an important step moving forward for all religions is to interpret passages to minimalize passages, to marginalize them. Because I don't think we're going to get religious people to give up their religion or to give up certain teachings. But we can reinterpret them and we can marginalize them, minimalize them. I think that's reasonable. That's what Jews have done. I mean, you don't see Jewish people stoning gays. There's a lot of gay Jews. My, my cousin is gay. He's very Jewish, which is which seems absurd because it's very clearly written in the texts that he studies and and wor and worships for the God that he worships. Um, it was handed down that people like him should be stoned to death. Clearly, there's no there's no reinterpreting that. It's not like it was something you can. I mean, hey, maybe you can, and maybe people do. Maybe we could just reinterpret it to mean you should get they should get stoned or something, which, while not um, not condoned by Buddhists, is much better than the alternative. But there's like the this passage in Islam that uh, seems to say a woman should be beaten for being for I don't know for for refusing inter sexual intercourse or for uh, disobeying her husband, something like that. There's a clear word that is translated, but there's an attempt to retranslate it. No, you shouldn't beat your wife, you should talk to her. And this word could also mean just talking to her, which is probably a better, well, let's not be facetious, it's a much better solution, to put it mildly. But um, we can also marginalize these teachings. That's what Jewish people do. They just they just don't pay attention to them. They say that was, that was then. This is now. It's, you may you may think that's somewhat hypocritical or or simplistic, but it's much better than the alternative, and it's a it's a sure step moving forward. I mean, I think a lot of Muslim men probably do beat their wives, but I'm sure there are Muslim men who don't. 
I have a, a friend who grew up in a Muslim, an old student who grew up in a Muslim household and was beaten constantly until she ran away from home. I mean, that, that, that's not something you should ignore. We can't give Muslims a carte blanche or say it's just cultural. We can't give Islam this, this path when it says these things. It has to be addressed. Because it's naive to think that it's not having consequences. And then you could say, well, non-Muslim women, men beat their wives and children. Of course. Of course, there are many reasons why people do bad things. But you can't tell me that religion doesn't, doesn't play a part in that. It's not the only the only factor, but it is a factor. Yeah. I mean, take Christianity. I don't think there's anything in Christianity that tells men to, to beat their wives and children. And yet, there are some people who uh, whose Christianity even involves corporal punishment. Heck, maybe there is something, I can't think of it, but it's not just the texts, it's your beliefs. It doesn't just come from what Jesus actually said, or what Muhammad actually said, or what Moses actually said, but it comes from your belief. Though, though I think it should be made clear that the things that these people said are, are not to be discounted and they are powerful anyway let's get back on track here but it's an interesting digression into the power of religion and the differences of religion and how these need these views need to be addressed these views that exist in books we have to either start ignoring them diminishing their importance uh, or reinterpreting them or we just have to give up the religion there was so someone posted this meme, I guess you call it, or one of these slogans or these pithy sayings was if religions believe that, if religions don't respect the sacred, something like the, the, the right for homosexuals to live, then maybe it's time for religions to die. I agree. agree completely. It's on religions if we can't adapt. And it's not proper to say that this is a misinterpretation. Heck, maybe it is. Maybe that's how we should say it. But it's naive. These texts say what they say. And to simply say that those people who kill in the name of religion don't understand religion is wrong. There are many, many religions that tell, tell their people to kill. Anyway. Buddhism certainly doesn't. Buddhism is very much the opposite and is often criticized for not killing. A Buddhist would not have killed Hitler, for example. And there are lots of Buddhists who would disagree with that, who would say, I would kill Hitler if I had the chance. Uh, so, a Buddhist like me would argue that person is not Buddhist, and then we'd get into an argument and so on. So, but Buddhism is a very, very peaceful religion. It's a religion that some people would call selfish because it's very self-centered, centered on a person, on one's individual happiness. I mean, this is Theravada Buddhism anyway. It believes that if we seek out our own peace and our own happiness, then the world becomes a better place. That's uh, not that that's even the goal. The goal is not to make the world a better place. The goal is peace. Peace can only happen on an individual level, according to Buddhism. Wow. 44, 45 viewers today. It's a big audience listening to my rant on religion. But the, the, how, how this, how this uh, whole, whole talk relates to our sutta today, our quote today. Because Arita has this view, but it's not equal to the Buddha's view, because Arita's view, as the Buddha points out, is 
has nothing to do with his 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 experience or his realization. It has all to do with his ignorance and his own in inborn um, uh, uh, partialities, inborn uh, habits, which is which is crucial. Not all views are equal. Getting back to this point, that uh, you can't say, "Well, I need to believe this and Buddha believed that." I need to believe that craving was not a problem. Buddha believed it was a problem. Well, you know, to each their own. It's not fair, because the Buddha spent a long time, hard work, working hard, to form his view. And the Ritta just comes along and says, well, I believe otherwise. This is very, very troublesome. It's a shame that uh, we would give equal weight to these two views. It would be a shame if we did. It's a shame for the, shame to those, shame on those who do. Because the Ritta is lazy and uh, hasn't done anything to make us think that his view should be even entertained. So that's the, that's really the bold claim in Buddhism. What's great about Buddhism is it's just a matter of, of investigating. We don't want you. We don't expect people to believe. We don't think that one should believe something without investigating. And the claim is that if you investigate, if you actually look. What you will see is what the Buddha taught. That's just a claim. You can investigate it. If you find out that it's wrong, wonderful. We'll all be very happy to know that you found the real truth. The claim is that when we do, and those of us who do investigate, understand there's nothing worth clinging to. And anything that we still cling to is only because we don't understand it. We haven't understood that. It's the claim. It's not a matter of believing or forcing or repeating this again and again to yourself. It's just about looking. Just about objective observation of reality. When you look at reality objectively without judgment, without uh, you know, just as it is, without any preconception or view, and that's important. It's not to trivialize this process. It's not like it's easy. You can just open the door and oh, there you see. You have to do some serious object objectifying. You have to objectify things, turn them into cold, calculated observations. Take yourself out of this preconception, this mode of preconception. So this is why we have this technical practice, mechanical practice of reminding ourselves, of walking back and forth, of sitting. Well, someone even today said to me, this is very mechanical. And, and I get this often. There's, I used to feel kind of you know, apologetic about it, but it's not to be apologetic about it. Of course it's mechanical. That's the point. The point is we want to make it as cold and, and un... Uh, emotional, I guess, as possible. We want this to be like a science project. But you're, the problem is you are the subject. And you know, no one wants to be a machine. No one wants to be a robot. And that's a very f great fear that we have of losing ourselves, of losing who we are. The thing is, when you do something mechanical like this, you don't become a robot. You, uh, you become peaceful. But in the meantime, your, your whole being, what, why we do this is because, your whole be is because your whole being screams out against it. It's those screams we want to hear. It's that... Uh, uh, opposition 
the rejection that we want to feel, that intense need for stimulation that we want to taste, because that's the problem. That's the undeniable problem. Once you see it, you can't deny that this is insanity, that we are lost, that we are uh, obsessed with things that have no way of satisfying us. So we start to see a, 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 a disconnect between the reality of things and our appreciation of them. So on the one hand, as we're watching reality, we see how abysmally insipid it all is, uninteresting. Watching your stomach is not an interesting thing. It's not like, it is quite interesting, but it's not a, it's not a, an appealing thing. It's not going to make you go, wow, that's awesome. Instead, it might make you go, wow, that's crazy. Make you reject it because it's unpleasant. Not pleasant in the sense of it's impermanent, it's unstable, it's unpredictable. It's not something that's uh, going to be, it's not something that's going to make you happy. So it's something that's satisfying. And so there'll be this great rejection of it. And uh, so, you know, so on one hand, you'll see this insipid nature. On the other hand, there's going to be a, a desire for these things. So you'll see this in regards to sights and sounds and smells. As a meditator practices, um, even the food that they eat becomes tasteless. And so they'll have this craving and then they'll indulge, but, it, but as they're being mindful, they see how it, the indulging doesn't actually, doesn't measure up to the hype of the craving. Oh, that's going to make me happy, and then it doesn't. So the Buddha says, sense desires bring little enjoyment and much suffering and disappointment. The perils in them are great. Sense desires are like bare bones, I have said. They are like a lump of flesh. They are like a snake's head. And they bring much suffering and disappointment. Anitta has wrongly grasped the teachings. And then he gives the alagadubhama, which is the simile of a snake. He says, if someone goes and looks for a snake, he sees a large snake. And he wants that snake, so he grabs it by the tail. He grabs it by the tail and thinks, good, now I've got this snake. And the snake turns around and bites him and kills him. Why is that? Because he, he grabbed it by the tail. He had an improper grasp of the teachings of the snake. And then there's another person who, looking for the snake, knows how to grab a snake. Takes it right behind the neck. Snakes are actually quite easy to catch, you know, unless it's a big, big snake. Grab it behind the neck. They're not monsters. They're not even that intelligent. Just grab them behind the neck, right behind the head. Best thing is what the Buddha says here, I think, is, uh, yeah, he doesn't even grasp it. He gets this a forked stick. And he uses the stick to hold it down, pin it down, and then he grabs it. You know, if you have the right kind of stick, you don't even have to get close to the snake. Just put the stick down behind his neck, pin it there, and then grab it. Teaching is very much the same. You're not the stick. You don't need a stick. You need proper grasp. Proper grasp. 
And this is the idea of misinterpretation. So then you could argue, well, how do we know one interpretation of the Buddha's teaching is better than another? I don't think it's that difficult. and I don't think the, re the interpretations are that varied. I do think that meditation techniques vary and vary in their uh, potency. But we all believe that. I think it's wrong for people to say this meditation is wrong, this way is so many people say that about the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, that it's wrong, misguided. Um, so you might take that as meaning that it is wrong, which is fine. But, but that's a, a lot of people do that out of belief. They've never really given it a chance, and so they do it without investigating. Those people, of course, who practice tend to think that it's wonderful and beneficial and helpful. And I get this a lot in Sri Lanka when I go there. People don't want to practice and they challenge me. And it's kind of fun because you can say, well, you know, Ehi Basa, come see. Try it out. 100% guarantee. There's no doubt anyone who puts this into practice will see the benefit. And it goes to some other, it goes to the simile of the raft and on and on. It's a really good sutta. But in the end, he comes, comes, I think at the very end, yes. He says, he gives our quote, today's quote, if I can find it. This teaching is so well proclaimed by me and this plain, open, explicit and free from patchwork which one is the right those monks who are mature in Dhamma mature in faith are all headed for full enlightenment those who believe those who believe it now I think the commentary will go on to say that this is Sotapanna this isn't just anyone who has faith in the teachings but I think it bears, it bears discussion of simple faith. People who have real faith in the Buddhist teaching to the extent that they're going to put it into practice. They are bound for enlightenment. And I think what's important about that is to talk about the power of faith. Faith is good. Faith is powerful. Let's put it. Maybe not good is, is too strong a word, but it is considered in Buddhism to be intrinsically good in the sense that it helps the person. Faith helps you. Talk about faith healing. I think that's right. I think faith does heal because of the, the power it has over the mind. Of course, doubt is something that, can, that disturbs you, stresses you, upsets you. The problem, of course, that anyone can see is that um, it's, not the, it's not the faith that's... A, that becomes a problem, but if you have faith in the wrong thing, that's a serious problem, it's a very dangerous problem because of the because of the very power of faith, because of how good faith is for you. If you have belief in in the wrong thing, if you believe that killing people is good, that's horrible. But it's more horrible because of how powerful, because of how good faith is. Faith is good for you. That's a problem when your faith is 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 has an improper focus because it gives you it empowers you to act and to follow that faith so to to end up doing and saying and thinking nasty things but if you believe in the, in buddhism it's kind of just lucky for you you know good good that you found the right faith because eventually that faith will turn to knowledge. Eventually that belief that this practice is helpful. And of course, the cynic might say, well, belief is not enough. You know, some people believe but never practice. This is true. And some people practice without belief, which is also true. But I think it's, it's important to note, to note that faith helps. You know? Faith in the practice will lead you to practice. 
and uh, a person who, who really believes that something is good will do it and won't need faith anymore but the, but the point I wanted to make is that faith is fickle it's 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 hard not fickle but faith is is a gamble faith is is very dangerous because by itself it has nothing it, it has no reason you believe something you can believe something for any reason unless you believe something out of cause and effect or uh, experience and investigation it's just a crapshoot Maybe you're Christian, maybe you're Jewish, maybe you're Buddhist. Some people just get lucky. You're born into the right religion. But more importantly, faith is not enough. Faith is, uh, faith is good, but what is most important is true faith. That this teaching is so great that those people who have unshakable faith in it, those people who have come to investigate it and have come to uh, see enough to believe in the truth. These are the true people of true faith. Buddhism is so great that those people, unlike those people who have great faith in another religion, those people, are, those monks, are destined to be free from suffering. It's a claim that you know, basically that all religions make. But um, you know, the Buddha here is, is saying it as a matter of fact, as how great it is, how great the Dhamma is. It's great that it's actually true for one. And I've skipped the, the rest of the sutta. But, but I think what, what, is, what is different here is, and we shouldn't gloss over it. And why I mentioned that I've skipped the sutta is because the sutta itself is what's important. The teaching itself is what's important. I've actually skipped you know, teachings here, teachings on uh, impermanence, where he goes into it, and it's really the, the crucial aspect. So, the, the point to be made is that. The Buddha is talking about the Dhamma. It's not talking about some belief or some claims. He's talking about a teaching. The teaching is so great that it actually works. You don't just have to believe it. You just have to believe that if I worship Allah or if I praise Jesus, I'm going to heaven. And then just believe, believe, believe without any evidence. You can investigate. You know. What do you think, monks? Is form permanent or impermanent? That kind of thing. And what do you think? Is the rising and falling, is it permanent or impermanent? Is it stable or unstable? Is it uh, predictable or unpredictable? You don't realize that. When we practice, we see how unpredictable it is. But uh, it disturbs us and it makes us think that we're doing something wrong. Why? Because, well, we are looking for predictability, stability. And so on. And he says, you may well take hold of a possession, O monks. Hold on to something, if it's permanent, stable, eternal, immutable, that abides eternally in the same, the same in its very condition. And he says, but do you see, monks, any such possession? This is a very important aspect. This, this, this passage is uh, very important, quotable. He says, hold on to a view of self from the acceptance of which there would not arise sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. But do you see such a view? No, they don't see such a view. Hold on to anything. If something makes you happy, hold on to it. I'm not trying to stop people from being happy. If something makes you happy, that's great. Very good. 
problem is nothing makes you happy when you hold on to it. That's the problem. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to believe that. But investigate. Look closely. Don't be afraid to challenge your views with observation. Challenge our views, my views, anyone's views. Observe, investigate. And as you investigate, you see that everything is un unstable. That what, what, what reality is really made up of is experiences that are unpredictable, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. And he says, therefore, all form, feeling, memories, thoughts, consciousness, should with right wisdom thus be seen as it is. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Seeing this, monks, the well-instructed noble disciple becomes, he uses disgusted, but I think a better word is disenchanted. Let's go back to the Pali. Rupas nibindati vedanaya nibindati sanyaya nibindati. This is basically the uh, Satipatthana, uh, the Anatta, Anatta Lakana Sutta. He's just repeating himself. This is a, you know, he, do, he doesn't vary from this theme because this is the core. This is what I mean. So we're, the, the, the basic quote here was about um, those people who believe have faith but their their belief is based on having seen these things for themselves but but this is the teaching that that is based on so you could say well because I, I said that all religions make this claim that our teaching makes you leads to you to enlightenment so in and of itself it's not important but what's important for us to say and I think what's great to be able to say is that well you know in Buddhism's case it's actually true and we can show that can show anyone that you don't have to, you know it's not just belief wonder you know even many religions would say that christians would say well i can show you i know the mormons do they highlight a passage in their book and they say read this passage to yourself and that will show you the truth just reading the passage so it'd be interesting to do a study about that i get it because when you read certain passages it brings you makes you feel happy and gives you faith that's fine, you know. It's a bit simplistic is all. To then say that that means God has come to you and therefore you should believe our book. Because you can read many different things and make you feel happy and make you give you great feelings of joy. And so. so the difference is in the teachings. You know, yes, everyone will say that our teaching leads you to freedom from suffering. Yes, everyone will say that, or many will say that we can show you. Some will say no, some will say you just have to believe and force yourself to believe. But many will actually say they can show you. So that's, that's, what, well, that's, where, the, that's where the differentiation comes from. All religions say certain things, that's true. Most religions anyway. But it's the things that they don't say. It's the it's the where they where they differ. That's important, and it's what they actually teach that's important. It's what you believe, it's the content of the belief that's important. Anyway, I don't think there's much more to say about all this. It's interesting to. It's great to be able to appreciate. Buddha's teaching in this way to remind ourselves of how great it is and that even though all religions claim such things there's no other religion out there that's able to show in such a way not just show but show in such a scientific clear and and un, undeniable way you know, it's not something you can investigate it as much as you want. 
the more you investigate, the better, the more obvious it becomes. We've got some comments here. Hey, everyone. I think followers of religions choose to ignore the bits they feel are no longer relevant to our sense of right. And I think that's good. I mean, it's not the best. The best is it would be if they all became Buddhist, of course, but beyond becoming Buddhist, it's great that they can ignore, I think. It's much better than the alternative. I just think we should make that explicit, make that clear. If you're going to be this religion, if you're going to be Jewish, you have to ignore the stoning of gay people and, and apostates and that kind of thing. If you're Muslim, you have to ignore or reinterpret those passages that tell you to beat your wife and so on. And we shouldn't give these religions a pass. It must be clear that, in fact, you know, heck, I mean, it's funny because you shouldn't be allowed to, 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 it should be against the law to promulgate hate like that, right? You shouldn't be able to say gay people should be killed. You shouldn't be able to say that. You shouldn't be able to print it, right? You shouldn't be able to print the Bible. Quran. These books shouldn't be able to be printed unless they have been reinterpreted or those passages uh, ex exercised, exercised, excised, excised, I think is the word. Doesn't Buddhism teach no view similar to right view? It's a good point. It's a very good question. Uh, deceptively good, I think, because obviously Buddhism does have view. But uh, in a sense, yes, it is kind of no view. In the sense of it not being a view, it just being uh, the, the view or the, the, the perception of reality. But I think view is a good word for what Buddhism is. It's just, it's not really a view in the, in the, general, in the common usage of the term. But view means seeing, how you see things. So if you see things according to as they are, that's a view. But it's not a view in the sense of an opinion or a belief or the way you look at things. It's not about how you look at things. Buddhism is about how things are and about seeing how things actually are. take into account the audience, the religious texts. Yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of people, religious people do. They, Jew, Jews tend to say that, well, that was, that was then, this is now. Which honestly is, is not the best excuse. Uh, because th there, there was never an excuse to beat your wife. Uh, you know, unless she's attacking someone and then you should try your best to stop her. Um, there's never an excuse to kill gay people. Never an excuse to kill anyone. It's not like, well, it's okay. Back then, it was okay to stone gay people to death. No, it wasn't. Do you think Hitler needs to needed to be stopped or allowed to continue to doing to doing allowed to continue doing harm? It's not your responsibility to change the world. Um, I like to say in general that there's no good answers to these questions. Uh, although more in terms of not hitting, not, not stopping someone or killing someone, obviously, who is hurting someone else. It's a hard one to uh, understand because emotionally we, we want to stop this person. I think it's great if we can intervene in a wholesome way. But scientifically speaking, objectively speaking, getting emotionally involved with anything is a problem. When you get upset at anything, it's bad. As a generally speaking. Now the curious thing that we have to note is that for all, in, in terms of these things, I mean, I guess this is how we, the context we have to put it in. Someone, one, one man is beating his wife, or one wife is beating her husband, which is, you know, a fair, fair, fair is fair, it's much less common. So it's more common for a man to beat his wife 
um, should you, and you see it, should you, you know, beat him? Should you attack him? Uh, sh or should you even stop him? This question. Now, how we have to answer that as Buddhists is, if you want to be be completely, and it sounds very cold and, and impractical and, and uncompassionate, does what uh, does you intervening bring you closer to enlightenment? I think that's a fair question, even for the Mahayanans, Buddhists who believe that we should intervene quite more often than Theravadan Buddhists do. I think that's an important way to frame the question because then it's not but but you know um, but that's what a good person does or or no, no not even but how can you even think to be so cruel as to ignore what's going on you know you have to it's your responsibility because i don't have to do anything and as i've often said if if killing and stealing and lying and cheating actually made me happy then why wouldn't i do it what would be wrong with it if it actually made me happy? Very awful to say, right? No one wants to hear that. Cringe even thinking about it. But why we cringe is important. Because it doesn't make us happy. Killing, stealing, lying, cheating. The important thing, and, and it sounds cold and cruel, but the important thing is that it doesn't make us happy. It doesn't lead to peace. It can't by its very nature. This is evil. It is intrinsically evil. It is, and it's evil in the sense that it disturbs, causes stress for the person who does it. It's much worse for the person who kills than, than for the person who's killed. And that's an important point. If you're tortured or killed, it's not as bad as torturing and killing. It's not as bad for you. It can actually be somewhat cathartic to be beaten to be killed because you learn more about suffering. I mean, it's being a bit, I don't mean to, to make light of it. It's awful, of course, but it's not awful in the same way as being an awful person. A person who is tortured can learn a lot about suffering. That seems horrific to say, I know, but it is actually true. People who go through difficult ordeals can actually build character from it. Not to say that it's, it's okay to, you know, therefore okay to do this to people. It's not. It's horrible to do. The person who has anger and, and cruelty in their mind, they're the ones who are truly going to suffer. The ones that are truly perverted by the experience. But, sorry, getting quite off track. Um, the, the, the answer is usually not quite so clear. I mean, if I intervene in this case, is it going to make me bring me closer to enlightenment? Because I might even get upset and 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 hurt the person, and and you know, I might beat attack them in order to get them to stop. And that might be bad karma, you could say, because I've done something cruel to hurt someone. But but overall, I've done something good. You know, I've I've made someone happy, and I've stopped someone else from from doing terrible things that are going to make them suffer as well. And so maybe on the balance, good has come from it. And maybe I feel better about myself for helping someone. And maybe it does lead me closer to enlightenment. So we understand this to be a black and white karma, generally speaking. There's there's some bad to it and some good to it because there are moments. You know, car true karma is the moment. And the idea is to purify our minds to the point where we never give rise to unwholesome moments. And so asking questions about should one intervene, we can only give general answers. Like generally speaking, it's going to build problematic habits of obsessing over other people's problems, trying to fix other people's problems, trying to save the world. Because even Mahayana Buddhists have to acknowledge that the goal is not to save the world in the sense of making the world a more comfortable place to live, but it's about saving minds bringing people closer to enlightenment. So if it's not bringing people closer to enlightenment, it's not actually beneficial. Does Buddhism teach self-sacrifice? Meaning to be sacrificed for others' own interests or goals. 
Well, our Buddhism actually doesn't at all. But uh, I wonder if you could say that Mahayana Buddhism does. I think it's it's not possible because if you truly if you truly sacrifice your your own well-being. I mean, I guess I just want to simply say that when you help someone else, you help yourself. You do something good for someone else, it's good for you. But there is the problem that when you go too far out of your way to help others, it may be a short-term benefit for other people, but the long-term repercussions to your own benefit, like if you stress yourself out about things, if you tax yourself, if you go too far out of your way to help others, you neglect your own well-being, and in the long term, it, it, it doesn't help you or others. It doesn't do good at all. So we tend to focus on self-betterment because when you become a better person, much better, easier to help others. Do advanced Buddhist meditators ever cry? Um, tears can come, but it wouldn't be crying out of sorrow. A person, a Buddhist can't cry out of sorrow. An advanced Buddhist meditator can cry out of out of rapture. That's possible. I don't think it's likely for an arahant to cry. You know, out of out of joy even. I don't I don't have you know evidence or or a proof of that but it seems it seems somewhat excessive now of course the body will react to experiences but it seems like an arahant would be so uh, it, so settled centered that extreme states of like coarse laughter or <clears throat> or tears would be probably a bit too extreme. So I'm not convinced that an arahant can cry, but um, surely an advanced meditator can. Just and, and even out of sadness, you know, how advanced? So even a sotapanna can still cry. Like Wisaka is a good example. We've got these stories of this woman who was a sotapanna, and her 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 grand her granddaughter died. And she started crying because you know she wasn't she was advanced, but she wasn't perfect, or she maybe wasn't that advanced. But uh, no, crying isn't always negligent. I mean, actually, I don't know. It it seems to me maybe there is always a little bit, but but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It comes from rapture from states of such bliss that there's a bodily reaction. What's your view on experiencing life as if you were playing a game, the good and bad purely for experiencing the human condition? Was there a reason the universe chose to unfold like this? The universe didn't choose. The universe is only us. We are the universe. Um... Life as if you're playing a game, well, the problem with games is they're somewhat whimsical. Unless you mean by a game that you're trying to win, but I don't think so. I think you mean like an open-ended game where you just play, like a sandbox. Where you just play in the sandbox with no aim, build things, do this, do that. I would argue that that's sort of how we all live our lives. We don't have a set goal. We have our goals, but they're not real goals because we know they're not permanent. We're just playing in the sandbox for the most part. Some of us are better at it than others. Some of us are more, get too serious about it. But no, that's not really the Buddhist way of, of looking at things. Buddhism, we're in it to win it. It's more uh, somewhat 
guess competitive, not competitive, but you know, more more of a sport sport than a game. It's a game to be won, to be to be completed, get the best possible outcome. In Buddhism, there's a sense that if there's a better possible outcome to be had, a better possible path to be followed, then it's worth following. That's the point. Yeah, you can just play it as a game. It'll be some happiness, some suffering. But if you actually try and win, there'll be more happiness than suffering. Which is the point. All right, it's been over an hour, and I've talked a lot. More than I expected. I expected to come on here and say, hey guys, I'm back. See you all tomorrow. But something was on my mind, this whole religion thing. And we happened to get a good quote for that. So I'll try to be on every night now. But uh, we're going to have to be more meditative. So let's do some some logged meditation. Try and meditate before the talk. And uh, yeah, it's great. It's great to see that as soon as I'm back, everyone's back as well. I thought, oh no, I'll be back, but no one's going to come and listen. 46 viewers on YouTube. That's great. Have a good night, everyone. See you all tomorrow.